0: Welcome to Ain't No Such Thing, where we tell original Southern horror stories. My name is Amanda, and tonight I'll be reading you another story from the book Three Stories of Love, Death, and Things in the Dark by Ian McDowell. This episode contains subject matter which may not be appropriate for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Some Old Lover's Ghost I want to talk about some old lover's ghost, who died before the God of Love was born. John Donne. The only way I know how to tell this story is just to write what happened. If it was something I'd made up, I could play around with it, give it a neat narrative hook, start in the middle of things and be off and running. But it's true, and I want it to stay that way, so I'm beginning flat and plain. It happened in 1989 when I was earning my master's in English from the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. Since I already had one master's, an MFA in creative writing, they offered me a teaching assistantship, just like a Ph.D. candidate would get. Needless to say, I took it. $7,000 a semester wasn't much, but it helped. Lots of graduate assistants hate the actual teaching. They're just into the research or finishing up their dissertations and will tell you as much. For them... Teaching a class full of glassy-eyed freshmen is drudge work to pay rent like waiting tables is for a struggling actor. It wasn't like that for me. I liked teaching, even if it was dreary at times, slogging through piles of essays on why the drinking age shouldn't be raised to 21, a big issue that year. I learned one trick to make it easier, or at least more rewarding. Whenever the schedule of classes I was taking permitted, I signed up to teach at night, that way. I got a higher percentage of NTAs, non-traditional adults, that is, older students. It was sort of daunting when I started out teaching people sometimes twice my age. But they were much more committed to learning than the average undergraduate. After all, they were there because they wanted to be, not because mommy and daddy were footing the bill. Having even one of them in your section could change the attitude of the entire class, and I usually had three or four out of a class of twenty-five. Anyway, in August of 1985, I was teaching English 101 each Tuesday and Thursday night at 7 p.m. Right before the first class of the semester, I stopped by the office of one of my professors, Dr. Suzanne Radcliffe. Dr. Radcliffe, she wasn't the type you to address as Suzanne even at departmental meetings where we were ostensibly peers, was a tall woman in her mid-40s with short graying hair, prominent cheekbones, and striking dark eyes. Rather attractive in a sort of severe, weathered way, she had always intimidated me, but I liked her. When I knocked on her half-open door, she looked up from the stack of books on her desk. Hello, Tim. God, she had a deep voice. Hi, is your romantic lit class closed? She held up a roll sheet which looked very full. Theoretically. Did you want to add it? Yes, if I might. All right if you do me one favor. That was a surprise. I'd expected her to refuse. Anything. I desperately needed the class that semester as it was the only one that would fit my schedule. Are you going to the library? As a matter of fact, my freshman comp class was being held in the seminar room on the seventh floor, space being in short supply due to renovations in the MacGyver building. I told her as much. She laughed, albeit rather sourly. (laughs) Yeah, that's my fault. I was supposed to teach there this semester, but I wouldn't do it. I told him to give the room to one of the composition people. Bitch, I thought, but I smiled anyway. One of the advantages of tenure, I guess. You can make sure you get the classes right across the hall from your office. She stopped smiling. It's not that. I just don't like that room or that floor. But if you're teaching there tonight, the class will be starting shortly, won't it? Let me sign your ad slip and give you this stack of books to drop off at the circulation desk. Unfortunately, there proved to be a line, and it was after seven by the time I got up to the counter. It's not good for the instructor to come to class late, at least not on the first night. I handed the books to a gangly Pakistani and started to sprint toward the elevator. Wait, he yelled at me. This one isn't ours. He was holding a slim little hardback. I came back and examined it. He was right. It still had a dust cover, and there was no call number on the spine. She must have given this one to me by mistake, so I took it with me. The seventh floor was typically empty. I didn't know what books are shelved there, English and American literature, on the second floor. But I'd taken my research methods and bibliography classes in the seminar room two semesters previously, and I never noticed anyone at the tables or carols. Actually, that was good. It meant I wouldn't have to keep the door shut all the time. Nobody was in the seminar room yet, either even though it was now seven minutes after the hour. I should have expected as much. Freshmen have enough trouble finding their way around the regular classroom buildings in the first few weeks, and a lot of them wouldn't realize that the JKS on their computer printout class schedules meant Jackson Library. Better just have a seat and wait. I took a second to look at Dr. Radcliffe's book. The title was intriguing. Ballads of Dead Ladies, Poetry of Love and the Grave. The dust jacket was yellowed and brittle. I hope this wasn't a valuable edition that she'd accidentally given me. Inside, there was a faded inscription. For Suzanne, with all my love. Then a name I couldn't make out. And a date. Christmas 1965. Feeling like I was prying, I thumbed it till I got to a makeshift bookmark. A post-it note on which was scribbled. Photocopy for class handout October 10th. Here was something I recognized from my 7th grade literature textbook, one of the child ballads, The Unquiet Grave. Softly I read aloud the lines I'd always liked. The wind doth blow today, my love, and a few small drops of rain. I never had but one true love, in cold grave she has lain. I looked up, someone had just come in the door. A short, slim girl with dark bobbed hair wearing a paint-splattered gray smock and black stirrup pants. Hi, I said embarrassed that she might have heard me reading aloud. Have a seat. We'll make introductions once everybody is here. She just stood there. You you are in my class, aren't you? She wasn't carrying the text or even a notebook. Several other people appeared in the doorway just then. The dark-haired girl nodded shyly and took a seat at the back of the room. Once it looked like everyone who was coming was there, I started to read the roll. If your name isn't on this, talk to me after class. There were 24 names on the roll, and 19 of them were present. Three more weren't on the roll. One of them was the dark-haired girl in the back. The other two, male and female preppy types, sat up front clutching ad slips. I introduced myself, gave them my usual spiel about how they should call me Tim, Not Mr. McDonald, and not Dr. McDonald under any circumstances. Real professors get mad. There were three NTAs in the class. Harvey, a middle-aged salesman with a Bronx accent. Janice, a pleasantly plump housewife. And Terry, a dental hygienist. As usual, they led the class discussion, but pretty soon everyone had loosened up. Except for the dark-haired girl. She never said a word. Never took any notes either, but I didn't care about that. Okay, for tomorrow, I want a short essay on what you think students should get out of an English composition class. Use specifics and direct examples, and for God's sake, forget what your high school teachers may have told you about using long sentences and avoiding the first person. Short, declarative sentences are fine, and since you'll be dealing in your own opinions, the first person is the expected voice. Got that? They did. Class was over. The couple with ad slips came up for my signature. Wait a second. I said to the dark-haired girl who was heading for the door. She paused. I signed the ad slips and wished the preppy couple a good night. The dark-haired girl just stood there. I got up and approached her. She had a sharp nose and chin and big green eyes, the latter somewhat red-streaked as though she'd been recently crying. Although superficially similar to the haircuts that were starting to come into style, her bob had a teased flip something like out of the 60s. Even with the teased hair, she was very pretty. Don't you have an ad slip for me to sign? Oh, I'm, I'm not ad in your class. I just wanted to sit in. Her voice was husky with a southern accent, more like the ones you hear in movies than the ones usually spoken in North Carolina. Just sitting in, why? Well, I've been out of school for a while. She didn't look old enough. Are you an NTA? I don't know. What's that? A non-traditional adult. She laughed. Not a giggle, thank God, but a throaty chuckle. (laughs) Yes, I think I am. Good, I replied. So am I. What's your name? Shit, that sounded like a come on. The last thing I wanted to do was be perceived as the kind of jerk who makes passes at his students, except that she wasn't one of my students, apparently. My name's Megan, she answered after a rather long pause. I work here in the library, and I was wondering if you'd mind if I sat in on your class from time to time. Not at all, but I don't want to get you in trouble. I mean, you shouldn't be sitting in my class when you're supposed to be shelving something or whatever. <laughs> she shook her head. Oh, no, I'm not working now. Oh, good. Would, would you like to get a beer or a cup of coffee? She looked down at her feet. I can't leave right now. But you said you weren't working. She shook her head. Yeah, but I've got some things I've got to look up. I almost offered to help her, though she probably knew more about the library than I did if she worked there. Anyway, she was already gone. I gathered my stuff together and put it into my briefcase, sighing. Being only a few years older than my students sometimes made me feel very awkward. There was no sign of Megan out in the quiet stacks, even though I hadn't heard the elevator. Maybe she was hiding in the bathroom. Ah, great. She probably had thought I was coming on too strong. The next day was Dr. Radcliffe's romantic literature class. Afterwards, I gave her back her copy of Ballads of Dead Ladies. Oh, did I give you that? There was a faint catch in her voice. Yes, I I noticed you mark the unquiet grave. I always liked that one. She put the book in her briefcase. Good. I'll be copying it for a handout when we talk about the demon lover tradition. That sounded interesting. I didn't ask who gave her the book. Megan wasn't at my next class, or the one after, or the one after that, but two weeks later, there she was again in the back of the room, still looking like she'd been recently crying, and still wearing the same gray smock and black stretchy pants. Unlike her hair, her clothes were a style that was starting to come into vogue. I'd just graded everyone's first major paper, and they all wanted to talk to me after class, so I didn't get a chance to speak to her. She didn't show up again until right before Thanksgiving. Before that, Halloween came and went. The school paper, The Carolinian, did their usual story about campus ghosts. It mentioned that the seventh floor of Jackson Library was supposedly haunted by Mary, a girl who'd hanged herself there in the mid-60s. It referred to the seventh floor as the law and legal studies floor, which was something I'd never known, and which explained why it was always so deserted. We didn't have a real law school like Duke or someplace, we just had a few classes that taught out of the poli-sci department. Why would anybody want to hang themselves on the law and legal studies floor? It certainly didn't seem a likely place for a haunting with its bright yellow paint, spacious metal stacks, and sterile fluorescent lights. The Graduate Library at Chapel Hill? Now there was a place you might meet a ghost, down there in the catacomb labyrinth of dark, musty corridors. If this was fiction, and not something that really happened, I'd set it in Carolina, not at UNCG. Like I said, Megan sat in on my class that Tuesday before Thanksgiving. She looked just the same. Same hairstyle, same smock, same splatters of paint, mostly green and yellow and some orange. Well, maybe that's what constituted her work clothes. What did she do? Shelf books? I'd never seen her at work. I'd never seen her anywhere, except in my class. If I were a character in a story, you might think me dense for not beginning to figure things out. But this isn't a story. And in life, we don't expect signs and portents. I gave my final assignment. It was what Walter Beale, who was both head of the composition program and the primary author of the English 101 textbook liked to call reflective-slash-exploratory writing. Here's one possibility, I said. Think about something that hurt or embarrassed you, something that still feels unresolved. Write about what happened in plain language that concentrates on the externals. Then talk about how you felt then. Then talk about how you feel now. Are they the same? If they're different, why do you think that is? Of course, a disclaimer was necessary. Look, I'm not demanding your most intimate confessions here. Remember, I'm just a graduate English major, not your psychiatrist. But try to deal with something that really matters to you, something that mattered then and still matters now. Naturally, they had a lot of questions about that, even after the time was up. Megan slipped out the door while they were still talking to me. I never saw her again after that. Papers were due on the last day before exams began, and for once, not one of them was late. There was already a stack of them on my desk when I came into the room, and everybody else handed in theirs by the end of class. It looked like I might get my grading done early this time. At home that night, I rifled through some papers while I watched a women's prison movie starring Sybil Danning playing on HBO. I'd insisted that the final essay had to be typed or done on a computer, and for God's sake, separate the sheets and remove the perforations. Somebody apparently hadn't hurt me. Not only was the damn thing written in pencil, but it had been scribbled on the backs of some sort of computer printout sheet that appeared to have been torn out of a bound volume. One side of each page listed legal journals from the American Bar Review to the Duke Law Quarterly, while the other contained crabbed and not terribly legible handwriting. It looked like it had been written using one of the blunt little number two pencils kept in a box beside the serial's printout on each floor. That was likely as the paper had been obviously torn out of the volume on the seventh floor. I was not going to bother reading this crap. Somebody had just earned an automatic F. I checked the upper right-hand corner for a name. There it was, though it was hard to read. Megan Campbell. That name wasn't on my roll. Megan? Well, at least I didn't have to worry about anybody filing a formal protest about a failing grade, but why had Megan bothered to do this? What the hell? I might as well read the thing. It took me a while to puzzle out her handwriting. Here's how it went. I did something really bad once. Or maybe it wasn't so bad. All I know is it hurt someone I loved. I think that's bad. I think something that hurts someone is the only kind of bad there is. She and I were roommates. She was beautiful and really smart. She was the editor of The Karate, the school art and literature magazine, a senior and an honor student while I was just a lowly little freshman art major without much talent. She liked my stuff, though, and printed some of my drawings in The Karate. We were close friends after that. We both liked folk music and would sit in the parlor and watch Hoot Nanny on the old TV set. Or she'd get out her guitar and play and sing. She'd grown up in the mountains and loved the old songs about sadness and dead lovers and all that. You should have heard her sing Barbara Allen. I couldn't decide if she was really going to be an English professor or the next Joan Baez. That last Christmas, she was supposed to stay with me and my family in Winston. We sat up Christmas Eve drinking eggnog, which we'd made stronger after my parents had gone to bed. I'd known for a while that I'd liked girls. I'd tried it with boys, but it never worked. She didn't know. Almost nobody did, but I knew. There were Christmas decorations up and holly and mistletoe. Look at that, she said. Your brother won't be home until tomorrow. There's nobody to kiss. So I kissed her. She kissed back at first, but then I got bold and tried to stick my tongue in her mouth, and that spooked her. She pushed me away and that punch bowl got knocked over and then she was running out of the house, out to her car. I ran after her. She was pulling out of the driveway. I ran back for dad's keys on the kitchen table and followed her. I caught up to her outside of Greensboro and stayed right behind her. She drove to the campus and pulled up in front of the library. It was all dark and locked up, of course, but she'd been working in the rare book room that semester and had a key. She ran in before I was out of the car, but she'd left the door unlocked behind her. I found her at the circulation desk, calling her dad on the phone. I guess she'd come there because she didn't have a dime, and this was the only phone she could use. "'Stay away from me!' she yelled. She told her dad she was coming home and hung up. "'Stay away or I'll tell the dean and I'll tell your parents.' And then she ran out, leaving me alone in the library. I wanted to kill myself." I never saw her again after that. How do I feel about it now? I don't know. Things are strange now, and they don't seem to change much. I no longer want to kill myself, though. I can't think of anything else to say. Jesus Christ. It was an effective piece of writing, but I didn't know what to think about it. It was late, and I was tired. Hootenanny? When was there a show on TV called Nanny? I woke up the next morning with a 48-hour bug, and the next days were blurry. I didn't get my grades finished on time, but I got them finished. I planned to go spend the holiday with my father in Fayetteville. We sometimes didn't get along, but my girlfriend and I had broken up that fall, and there was nowhere else to go. Since I'd gotten behind on everything, I found myself still in town on Christmas Eve. I'd left a present for Dad behind in my office cubicle was a better term, so I stopped by the English department just after sunset. I took my class's final papers with me, intending to put them in a manila envelope taped to my door so the students could pick them up after Christmas. When I did that, I realized that Megan's essay, if that's what it was, was still among them. Tucking it under my arm, I decided to stop by Dr. Radcliffe's office to see if she'd posted the final grades for her romantic lit class on her door. She was there, typing away on her computer. Somehow, It didn't surprise me that she was working on Christmas Eve. Sorry my final papers were so badly typed, I said. My Smith Corona broke and I had to use the one I rented from the bookstore. It didn't have a correcting feature. At least you used the new ribbon, she said. I've seen worse. I laughed. (laughs) Yeah, look what got handed in in my freshman comp class. I don't know why I did that, making light of Megan's essay that way. Maybe because it had disturbed me and this was a way of distancing myself. I hadn't really meant to hand it to Dr. Radcliffe, but she took it from me. Oh my, I hope you failed whomever wrote this. Actually, she's not a student. I was going to explain, but the expression on Dr. Radcliffe's face brought me up short. She was staring at the name on the essay. She looked like she'd been punched. Tim, what kind of sick joke is this? I still didn't have a clue, although you probably do. I'm sorry? She stood up and grabbed my forearm. Damn, she had a strong grip. Who wrote this? I told her. She stood there and listened, her pallor visible in the dimly lit hall. When I was done, she practically staggered back into her chair and slumped there, her face in her hands. Are you all right? I didn't know what else to say. At length, she looked up at me. Is College Hill open? She was referring to a popular bar. I don't know why. Let's go have a beer. I told her I'd been planning to drive to Fayetteville that night. Do you want to pass my class? I did, and I was curious. We went to College Hill. It was a cozy beer bar with a nice jukebox. Over a couple of pilsners, she made me tell her the whole story again in great detail. All right, I said finally, my patience wearing thin. What in the hell is this about? She traced the initials carved into the wooden table with a long forefinger. Megan Campbell jumped off the 7th floor of the library on Christmas Eve in 1965. It seems as though her ghost has been sitting in on your class. The only thing I could think to say was really stupid. I thought the ghost on the 7th floor was a girl named Mary who hanged herself. That's what the paper said. She snorted. When I was a student here, we believed Mary haunted Acock Auditorium. Almost every campus in North Carolina has a ghost named Mary who hanged herself. Stories get mixed up. Why the seventh floor? The ninth is the tallest. It was a tasteless thing to ask, but I was feeling a bit loopy. The library tower hadn't been added then. The floors above the seventh weren't open yet. Now for the really dumb question. How do you know all this? She met my eyes. I thought she must have been really beautiful when she was younger. Because I was the girl Megan kissed. The one who rejected her. Oh. She looked at her beer for a long time. I didn't admit I was bisexual for a long time. Not until I was at Duke earning my PhD. Bisexual was a surprise. The word in the department was that she was a pretty hardline lesbian. She hadn't stopped speaking. You've got to understand, for all the so-called sexual revolution of the 60s, it was still a pretty homophobic time. Nobody was talking about gay rights or identity, and 1965 was really the tail end of the fifties anyway. I killed my beer. I'm sorry. I mean, that doesn't help, but I don't know what to say. She stood up. Neither do I, but I know who I need to say it to. Where are you going? I already knew. To the library. I watched her leave without saying anything else, if this was a story. I'd add a couple of paragraphs here of my narrator's reaction. I'd probably have him profoundly shaken by this violation of his rationalistic worldview, this assault on all his preconceptions of how things really work. In his excellent book on the Victorian and Edwardian ghost story, Elegant Nightmares, Jack Sullivan observes that ghosts only become really frightening with the rise of rationalism. They only truly terrified us once we no longer believed in them. I'd never believed in ghosts before. Now perhaps I was prepared to believe in at least one. How did that make me feel? I didn't know. I still don't. Mostly, I try not to think about it. That's certainly what I did at the time. Instead, I thought about going home, but I decided I needed another drink first. I wasn't about to try driving to Fayetteville tonight, and there was nothing waiting for me back at my apartment. The another drink turned into four and I took my time killing each long neck. I sort of slumped in the corner listening to Nina Simone on the jukebox when Dr. Radcliffe came back. Her face was still pale, but more composed. I thought you might still be here. I lit her cigarette. Where'd you go? The seventh floor, but the library was closed. I called the vice chancellor, and he called campus security. They let me in and waited for me downstairs. God knows what they thought, but I don't care. One of the advantages of tenure, you know. It wasn't my business, of course, but I think she wanted to tell me what happened. She motioned for the bartender to bring her a beer. I got off the elevator, and there she was, waiting for me. Still 18, wearing that paint-splattered blouse she loved so much. So young. Not like me. So young. I wasn't sure she was going to continue, but then she did. I told her I was sorry. I told her I was wrong. I told her what I was. I asked her to forgive me for what I did. Did she? She wanted me to forgive her. So we forgave each other, just like we were both alive. Was that a tear on her cheek? We hugged each other and she felt warm and solid and real. Then we kissed. She sat there, her eyes fixed on something else, running her finger around the rim of her bottle. And it was definitely a tear. In the old ballads, if you kiss your dead lover, that's usually it. One touch of those clay-cold lips, and you die too. Maybe that's what I expected to happen, but I don't think I'd have minded But her lips weren't cold, and I didn't die. So I put my tongue in her mouth. For a moment, it was like kissing anyone that way. My eyes were shut. Her mouth was warm and wet. Then, just for an instant, it wasn't. I tasted, I don't know, dust. Crumbled dead leaves. Cold, dry, emptiness. And then nothing. When I opened my eyes, I was hugging myself in an empty room. I stared at the revolving CDs atop the jukebox while she wiped her eyes. I guess she's free now. Maybe I am too. She stood up. I better be getting home. My cats haven't been fed. Merry Christmas, said someone at the bar to somebody else. I looked at the clock. It was midnight. Merry Christmas, Dr. Radcliffe. I said somewhat inanely, Merry Christmas, Tim, she replied hoarsely. She did not invite me to call her Suzanne. She paid and left. I sat at the booth and killed my last beer. To dead loved ones, I said to no one in particular. You've been listening to Ain't No Such Thing, Some Old Lover's Ghost, written by Ian McDowell, from the book Three Stories of Love, Death, and Things in the Dark. Thank you very much to Ian for letting us share his story. I've become quite the fan, and I hope you all enjoyed it as well. If you'd like to listen to more Ain't No Such Thing, be sure to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, and we always appreciate those five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us to grow and stay higher in the search results. I'd also like to invite you to join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash ain't no such thing. We're a pretty active little group who are all horror enthusiasts and we have a lot of fun there talking about it and we always welcome new members. You all take care and I'm going to be back with another one for you real soon. Three Stories of Love, Death, and Things in the Dark, copyright Ian McDowell, Ain't No Such Thing, copyright Inverse Press, 2020, All Rights Reserved.